That being said, uh, we are going to finish off 1 Corinthians chapter 12 today, and we're going to read a passage that prioritizes the gifts of the ministry. This made me think for a moment about what you all might say if I were to ask the question, who is the most influential person, or who are the most influential people in Trinitas Church? I imagine one of the most natural answers would be that I'm one of the leading candidates, if not our ruling eldership. I suppose if people were a little bit more reflective, even you might, if you're aware of different influential preachers here in the PCA, you might think that we're being influenced from afar by someone named Rob Rayburn or other older men in our presbytery. Still others of you might come up with maybe the authors of the Westminster Confession. Because of course, that does define our confessional statement, our doctrine. But what I would have you know today is that the most influential people in this church have never been here in the flesh. Many of us are prepared to admit that Jesus is the right answer, is the most influential person. But it actually happens to be the case that there are others besides him who are here every single Lord's Day in a most powerful and influential fashion. They're listed in the passage of Scripture we're about to read as first. And they're the apostles. Friends, we live in a world where people are very concerned about other people having privileges that we do not. Talk about privilege is prevalent in the realm In the realm of political discussion and social ethics, historically, people have noticed, in fact, that it would seem that in different areas of commerce and banking, from time to time, there is an abnormal influence of the Jewish people, descendants of Israel. And this is made for all sorts of violence against this people about whom it is supposed there is undue privilege. Today, notably... There is this sense that men in general have had too much privilege and too much influence on society. And when I consider these two poles and these two extremes, which often seem to accompany the right and the left end of the political spectrum, of those who are concerned about others who have too much influence, I can hardly believe that Jesus decided to render the most influential people in his church 12 Jewish men. He had to know how challenging that would be for us today to tell the rest of the world. But what it carries with it is an entirely different view of privilege than what the world might suppose that word means. With that in mind, we're about to read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 27 to 30. And when we're finished, we'll sing a short verse together, the Gloria Patri, to give thanks to the Lord for this mighty and challenging word. So please, bow your heads with me and let's pray. Mighty God, there is perhaps, or there are perhaps few ideas in the world today that are more offensive than that some people should have privileges that others don't. That there should be any sort of priority among us. And yet we're struck by the teaching of your word that your church is marked by just that. Lord, give us ears to hear. Before we put up our defenses, before we put up the walls of our heart, soften our hearts and our souls that we might hear the teaching of your word. 
And that we might, Lord God, have deep instruction about the real nature of privilege in this great kingdom of Jesus Christ. We ask this, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by your Holy Spirit. Amen. You'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We are going to read verses 27 to 30. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. This is God's word. Please be seated. In the list of gifts of spiritual gifts before us, we've already discussed several. We've discussed the gifts of healing and the gift of miracle working, and we have discovered that these are still realities. Healing still takes place today in the church, as do unspeakable, unexplainable, wonderful things, miracles of sorts, even if they don't happen with the same prevalence or at the same sort of degree of prophetic authority as they once did. Well, today we're going to look at the gift of apostleship, and we're going to note That it's listed first. It's even identified as first of all the spiritual gifts. And I will have you know today that the apostles are still first in this church. Every single Lord's Day, we take guidance from these men who spent time with Jesus Christ. And it's wonderful that we still have this influence 2,000 years later. Therefore, I would ask you, I wonder if you know, who thinks they could name the 12 apostles? Most of the time, Peter, James, John, maybe Andrew, they tend to make the list. But at least eight of the apostles are up in the air for most of us. Four times in the New Testament, the list of apostles are mentioned. I'll go ahead and let you know who they are. you got Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Another man named Philip. Another man named Bartholomew, whom people often believe is the same individual as a man named Nathaniel. We've got Matthew, who's also called Levi. You've got Thomas, who's also called Didymus. You have James, the son of Alphaeus. A guy named Thaddeus, who seems to also be called by the name Judas of James. Then you have Simon the Zealot, and finally, Judas Iscariot. Whenever the apostles are mentioned, Peter is always mentioned first. And Judas is always mentioned last. I think you probably might have gotten Judas of the Apostles if I had asked you as well. It's frustrating because these men often are called by multiple different names. And it might seem confusing to you why, if they're so important. Nathaniel seems to be called by the name Bartholomew as well. If you wonder what that means, the word bar always means son of. So when you call him Bartholomew, you're really calling him son of this man named Tholomew or uh, Ptolemy is what they often think. You can think of how oftentimes when you play sports, you call people by their last names, right? You know that one. So it is with the apostles. 
Another reason why it's a bit confusing is they're often given new names by Jesus Christ or nicknames. James and John are called sons of thunder, hence Boanerges in the Aramaic. Then also, of course, Thomas is sometimes called Didymus, which is just the Greek name for twin. Both Thomas and Didymus mean just that. He appears to have been a man who was a twin. Thaddeus, which seems to be another name for Judas, the son of James, means courageous one, and it wouldn't be surprising if Jesus gave that name as well. One of the most classic ones, however, of course, is Simon being called Cephas, which means rock or stone, because he was a leader and sort of rock among the apostles. There's also the issue of the many different languages that were prevalent in Jesus' time. Sometimes these men are called by their Hebrew name, their Aramaic name, or their Greek name. That too frustrates. Simon, Cephas, and Peter are actually Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek names. Hence their differences. Sometimes they're called by their location. Judas Iscariot is called Iscariot, which probably means son of Kirioth, which means son of a town as his origins, a town called Kirioth. Other times they're identified by their affiliation, Simon the Zealot. If you didn't know this, back in Jesus' time, there was a political party that wanted to overthrow the government, and they were called Zealots. Simon appears to have been one of those. When you consider this matter of the names and their different names, the fact that some are called by the same name, you have two Judases, two Jameses, and two Simons, it's a bit frustrating. I'm actually thinking next week when I go to Presbytery and I examine a candidate for the ministry, I'm going to ask him to name all 12 apostles. It's kind of a trick question. You think any minister should be able to do it, but it gets a little bit fuzzy when you get into these lesser known individuals. If you don't know much about the apostles, I'm going to tell you about a few special relationships among them. There are two sets of brothers. You've got James and John. And if you didn't know this, James and John are probably the biological cousins of Jesus. So Jesus had two cousins who were brothers as part of the twelve. You've also got Peter and Andrew, all four of these men fishermen. Philip and Bartholomew appear to have been great friends a pair of buddies, part of this group of 12. And then there are odd couples as well. See, I just told you a moment ago, Simon the Zealot seems to have been a part of a political party trying to overthrow the government. There's another man named Matthew or Levi who actually worked for the government as a tax collector. And you've got to wonder, how did these two guys become part of one Jesus' ministry? This is the wonderful group of men through whom Christ decided to reach the world. We can note further, there are other groupings of these guys. There seems to be an inner circle of three apostles who have a unique access to Jesus that the rest don't. We've been talking about privilege. These men seem to be the privileged of the privileged. Who is it? Peter, James, and John. Only these three men got to ascend a mountain with Jesus, where Jesus became transfigured before them. He actually lit up like a torch in front of them. Looked like a heavenly being. No one else got to see that. Other groups include the first six versus the second six. Whenever the disciples are listed, six of them get listed first every time, even though the order changes. Peter, James, John, Andrew, and then after that, Philip. And Bartholomew, these six, seem to be in a prior grouping. 
It's interesting, but the Gospel of John tells us about the lesser known disciples more than the rest. The only reason you and I know about doubting Thomas is because of the Gospel of John that tell us about this one disciple who wouldn't believe in Jesus unless he saw him risen from the dead. It tells us about Philip, who demands that Jesus show him the Father. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long, Philip, that you don't know that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I should note as well that Apostle James was the first martyred apostle in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. The first man to die on account of Christ. Do you know these men? See, we can't get away from knowing these men as believers. When we look at this number 12, it is very clear that Jesus wants the world to know that he is recreating Israel in these apostles that he has called to himself. He is, as it were, a new Abraham, and he is a man with 12 spiritual sons. Maybe you've never considered this, but in the Old Testament, there are 12 sons of Abraham who define the people of God. Everyone is either their descendant, or if they become a proselyte and become part of Israel, they enter one of those tribes and take their name. Same is true of Christ's church. We are, as it were, all children of the apostles. You know, what's funny is that among the 12 tribes of Israel, we always say 12 tribes, there's actually 13. There's actually 13. Because one of those tribes of Israel gets divided into two. It's the tribe of Joseph gets divided into Manasseh and Ephraim. And strangely as well, there are really 13 apostles. Who's the 13th apostle? It's the apostle Paul. When we read about the 12 apostles, Paul describes himself as if he were like Benjamin, the last and youngest And in a sense, 13th tribe of Israel. Puts it this way. Jesus appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles. It is as if I were the youngest. And do you know what tribe Paul comes from? Tribe of Benjamin. See, there is this incredible parallel between the 12 sons of Israel and the 12 apostles that would have you know that it is as if Jesus had 12 sons of his own. He puts it this way. He says, as the Father has sent me into the world, I have sent you 12 apostles, my boys, into the world with my message. It is as if these men are Jesus' spiritual sons and we all theirs. Paul said this to the Corinthian church in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Friends, do you understand that I am as if a tutor at best, but you are children of the apostles who are themselves children of Christ. These men are still first, and they're still first in this church. What this means is that when heaven is described in Revelation, it is described as a place that we can only enter, as it were, by the ministry of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Listen to what this says in Revelation 21. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It had a great and high wall. 
with 12 gates, and the names were written on them, which were the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Friends, I don't know if you get this picture. What this tells us is that heaven is a place that not one of us will enter except by the wonderful witness of these 12 apostles. Can you believe that the foundation stones of this eternal city in which we have a citizenship has the apostles as their foundation? This means we can kick and moan. We can decry their privilege. We can be angry that they had an access that we do not or an authority that we do not. But make no mistake... No one will enter Christ's church and enjoy him for eternity who disowns his apostles. What a wonderful calling and privilege belongs to these men. They're still first. These men can never be replaced. They cannot be succeeded by another office of people. They cannot be replaced by a modern day prophet. No one can know about the life, death, and resurrection except in part by their ministry and their witness and what they've said. What then are the marks of the apostle? I'm going to talk about four marks of apostleship, and it will become clear why Trinitas Church does not believe in modern-day apostles and why we don't expect to encounter one. This might surprise you because there are certain traditions which say, well, there's an office that succeeds the apostles with the same authority and they under, end up undermining the fact that the apostles are still first in the church. There are others who say, and this is the hallmark of all modern day cults, that somebody came down with a new revelation about Jesus, which is just as authoritative as that of the apostles. These two things can't occur. And let's consider why. The first mark of an apostle is this. An apostle must be an eyewitness of the ministry and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They must be that. This is clear in Acts chapter 1 when Judas has hung himself, left the apostles, and now they're down to 11. And you got to have 12 to be the 12 sons of Israel. And this is what they say. Therefore, it is necessary that one of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. We need to have a twelfth. The entire premise for what it means to be an apostle is that you are one who can bear witness firsthand to the ministry, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul is defending his apostleship earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. He says this, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? A basic requirement of what it means to be an apostle is to be one who can say, I witnessed Christ resurrected. We should note that there are others, of course, who did see Christ resurrected, and therefore it's not sufficient. James and Jude, the brothers of Jesus, saw the resurrected Christ. 500 brethren at once saw the resurrected Christ. So this is a necessary condition of an apostle, but not a sufficient one. 
This leads us to the second mark of apostleship. An apostle must be one who not only saw the resurrected Christ, but was directly commissioned by Christ with the authority and office of a prophet to speak infallibly about him with the word of God on their lips. Perhaps you didn't know this, but the word apostle means one who's sent out. It means apa from stello, which means to be sent. Sent from Jesus. An apostle has to be someone who's been commissioned directly by the Lord. The word is actually generic. It was used to describe couriers in the Old Testament who were sent out from one person with a message to another. But an apostle has to be sent out directly by Jesus Christ. And listen to the promise that Jesus gives to his apostles in John 14. He says this, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said. He says to the apostles, I send you out and I give you my spirit and he will give you words infallible words of recollection about what you heard me say and what you saw me do. This is the prophetic calling of an apostle. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 10, verses 19 to 20, but when they hand you over, that's the kings and rulers and authorities, do not worry about what or how you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. These apostles, therefore, they're responsible for this book that we read every Lord's Day. 21 of the 27 New Testament books are directly credited to the apostles. What this means is that Matthew and John, two apostles, wrote two gospels, the 13 Pauline epistles written by an apostle, two Peterine epistles, three Johannine, and the book of Revelation, all written by apostles. Those of you who know the history of the church know that Mark is thought to be an inspired recorder of Peter's telling of the the gospel. And all the others have an indirect influence from the apostles. Luke and Acts are all about the inspired sayings of Jesus as recounted by the apostles to Luke. And it is an inspired account of the discourses and prophetic speech of the apostles throughout their life and ministry. Hence the Acts of the Apostles. The only other two, the book of James, the brother of Jesus, shows a dependence on the Sermon on the Mount as told by Matthew and Jude, a dependence on the second epistle of Peter. At the end of the day, the whole New Testament canon is either directly or indirectly the fruit of the apostles. See, there's more to it than that, friends. These aren't just the men who write down everything we know about Jesus. These are the men The foils in the background, the supportive cast, without which you can't even think of anything Jesus ever did. Think of those wonderful things that Jesus did and you will find an apostle right around the corner. Some of you will say, but Brant, I can think of the fact that Jesus fed 5,000. In fact, Jesus did not feed 5,000. He multiplied bread, gave it to the disciples, and they fed 5,000. Some of you will say, but Brant, I can imagine Jesus baptizing. But John 4, 2 says Jesus baptized no one. He commissioned his apostles to do that. 
Some of you will say, but Brent, I can think of Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And who do you suppose he preached it to? But a small group of the disciples. You say, Brent, I can think of Jesus walking on the water. But friend, are you thinking that Jesus was just going on a late night promenade and found himself walking on the sea? Or do you know that he was walking to a boat where he would find the disciples? Every wonderful thing that Jesus does, he does in the company of and in contrast to and in spite of the lack of faith of his disciples. Whether you think of the Last Supper, whether you think of the resurrection, or you even think of the crucifixion, you're going to think of who was not there, who abandoned Christ to the cross, and who was there, the one beloved disciple. What this means is that these men are utterly foundational. Ephesians 19, 2, 19 to 20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It's one of the reasons we never expect to find another apostle again. They're a foundation. If there's one part of the building you don't keep building, it's the foundation. You lay it once and there it is. This means we should never confuse the office of a teacher with the office of apostle. A pastor and a teacher like myself does not have apostolic authority. In fact, unlike the apostles who were never formally educated in a seminary context, someone doing this job needs to be because we are not given a prophetic spirit to speak the words of God immediately flowing from our lips as if infallible. We need to be students of what the infallible apostle said. You remember what Jesus said to the apostles? Do not worry about what you will speak when they take you before governors. Don't even think about it. The Spirit will take care of that. No one here wants me to show up on Sunday and say, I took Matthew chapter 10 very literally, friends. I gave not one thought to what I would preach today out of the Word. Heck, I'm still waiting on a Word. You wouldn't appreciate it. One of the reasons ministers even have to become students of a language that is foreign to them is because the apostles are first. They didn't speak English. And if we're going to get their teaching to you, you got to know a little bit of how they spoke their message in the first place. And that's in Greek, not English. This leads us to a third mark of an apostle, friends. Miraculous attestation that is unambiguous, unparalleled, And in many respects, never seen since these men. A lot of times people get really confused about why miracles don't happen with the same prevalence today and the same might and overt form as they do at various points in the Bible. It's a bit confusing. I suspect some people even think that maybe Jesus loves all of us a little bit less. And that's why these wonderful miracles don't occur in our time in the same way and degree. It's not the case. God has never been in the business of just doing miracles for miracles' sake throughout redemptive history. In fact, miracles have almost always been around to bring attestation to the fact that a divine authority is about to speak in the person of a prophet or an apostle. You think about miracles, you probably think about Moses, a man who needed to be set apart as a prophet of God in the most overt and powerful way, and miracles abounded around that man. 
After Moses, you might think of Elijah and Elisha. These two prophets had to oppose the most powerful kings of Israel. And they needed the people to know that they were doing so with a divine authority. And miracles orbited these men. You know that even Jesus himself is attested to in regard to his authority by miracle. Peter, when he preached at Pentecost, said, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs. These miracles were not done for no reason. They were to let you know that this Jesus is the Son of God. And so it is with the apostles. And Paul is defending the reality of his authority and apostleship to the Corinthians who doubt it utterly. He says this, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. This is how you should know that I am sent by God. And some Christians were going back to Judaism, doubting in Christ. The author of Hebrews pursues them saying, How will we escape judgment if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His will. Friends, we do not see miracles with the same prevalence today because God loves us any less. The reason why we don't see those same performances is because it was God's will that these men should be marked out as abnormal authorities, never to be displaced or replaced by Joseph Smith, Charles Taz Russell, or any other founder of a cult institution in the course of time who never did any such things. He would have you know that these men are foundation stones. But this leads us to our fourth mark of an apostle, and this is the great corrective to our modern conception of privilege. The fourth mark of an apostle is that they would suffer and be humiliated for Christ as none of us ever have. These men experienced anxiety, persecution, physical torture, hunger, and martyrdom as no one in this room likely ever will. Listen to what Paul says about this privileged band of apostles. And ask yourself if you envy their privilege after all. Paul says, For I think God has exhibited us us apostles last of all. As men condemned to death. Because we have become spectacles to the world both to angels and men. He contrasts their calling with the Corinthians who believed themselves to be so wise, so powerful, so noble. He says this, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you, you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor to this present hour. We are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and roughly treated and are homeless and we toil working with our own hands. And when we are reviled, We bless when we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. 
There, friends, Paul is speaking about the physical persecutions experienced by these men, but you can only imagine the spiritual battle for these men who were to be foundations for the church. You know what spiritual battle is, friends? It's when you feel hopeless, when you feel dark, when you feel accused, when you feel persecuted sometimes for no reason at all and deep in your soul. Can you begin to imagine how the enemy must have assaulted these 12 witnesses of Christ and the resurrection? And could those things even be written down? These men who are privileged to have an authority in the church were privileged to suffer with and as Christ like no other. These men not only suffered on account of their being first, but they suffer humiliation that none of us know. Do you guys realize this? No group of believers in the history of the Christian church has had their sins against Christ so widely and publicly published as the apostles. Do you realize this? I want you to think for just a moment. If any Christian sin is so well and intimately known as Peter's threefold denial of Jesus Christ to his face. Any Christian whatsoever. I would just ask you this question as we envy the privilege of the the apostles. How would you like to be remembered forever and everywhere as a person so dull to Jesus' teaching that though you were saturated in it for three years, you still didn't get who he was? How would you like to be known everywhere and forever as a sleeper at Christ's passion when the armies came for his life? How would you like to be known everywhere and always as so obsessed with your own greatness that when the Son of God was in your presence, you only ever wanted to ask him how great you would be? How would you like to be known always and forever as still doubting that Jesus rose from the dead even after 11 others or 10 others told you that they had seen him? How would you like to be known as an accomplice to the murder of the first Christian martyr everywhere and for all time as the Apostle Paul was? How would you like to be known as someone who's still lapsing into a cliquish, sectarian mindset even after you've learned the gospel was for all nations? That's what Peter did. How would you like to be known as the guy who couldn't settle a dispute with another guy known as the encourager or Barnabas, like Paul? Everywhere and always. See, before you answer any of these questions, I would just ask you to ask yourself how ashamed you are of your much lesser sins than all of those. I will simply say, as a minister who often does counseling, I simply suppose I'm going to get 20% of any story the first time I hear it. Maybe 30 or 40 the second time. Maybe 50 the fifth or sixth time. And maybe never the entire story at all. I would also have you ask yourself this question about privilege in general. 
When you look at people who have privilege, from presidents to governors to politicians to movie stars, and you constantly find yourself being like, these people are such big idiots. How in the world do they have all this authority? Ask yourself what might show up on TMZ and in the the Inquirer if somebody were watching you all day. Your sins, your words, the ways you put your foot in your mouth daily being published to the world. And ask yourself if if it would be any less of an entertaining show. The reality is is that the privilege of the apostles, it involves suffering and humiliation. And the reason for this is very simple. They are the first preachings of the gospel. Through these men, the Lord would have you know that to be God's son, you do not have to be marked by exceptional gifting or prior education. You do not have to be marked by a holiness with which to begin. So Jesus has something to work with. You don't have to be marked by a steady progress toward God that Jesus jumps in halfway and claims you as his own. Jesus' first 12 sons were sinners. Sinners of obvious and indisputable proportions. These men were not perfect. These men, nevertheless, could be turned into people ready to be broken in every imaginable way for Jesus Christ in the cross because he not only died for them to make him his boys, he also determined to make them like him by his Holy Spirit. These men, these men are first because in them every single one of us can see (laughs) the possibility of salvation and healing. I hope that we can look through these men and their teaching and their witness every Lord's Day and be glad in it. Be glad that we did not have to suffer as they did, but to be inspired that when we suffer diverse trials, it is the mark of privilege in Christ. It is not the mark of despite. It is us getting to be something like these apostles sent out by Jesus as Jesus was sent out by his Father. Let us therefore learn it is a privilege, friends, to be last in the eyes of the world. It is as if to be first in the eyes of Christ. Let us count it a privilege. Let us learn from our big brothers. Let us be their children as they were children of Christ. Believer, you've gathered today and you count yourself somehow, some way, underprivileged. Let me suggest that you are looking through the lens of the world at what privilege means, which means living on high in this life rather than being humiliated and brought low in the name of Christ and for the kingdom. If you're an unbeliever in our midst, you happen to gather with us for worship today, I want you to know there is absolutely nothing you ever have done, nothing you ever could do, that would place you outside of the boundaries or the possibilities of being a son or daughter of Jesus Christ, except deny him to the end. That's the only thing you could do. I implore you to receive him. Those who were first in the church were not exceptional by any mark of the world before they became apostles, nor need you to be before you become a son of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Receive him today. Bow your heads with me. Mighty God, we confess that we are envious 
again and again, 100 times over, of those who seem to have more than we do. We're not just envious of the world and its wealth and its fame and its power. We're even envious of those who in the church seem to have some undue influence that the rest of us do not. We envy not only wicked things, we envy godly things, and we sour, therefore, even the best of pursuits. Forgive us, we pray. May we learn this lesson not only from the written word, but from the example. Not just from the command, but from the example of your disciples that our privilege comes in our proximity to you. There is nothing more privileged than to be near to you in this life, which is to be brought low in the eyes of the world, that we might reign with you on high for eternity. Let us leave with this confidence, this gladness, this grace. We ask these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by your Holy Spirit. Amen.